The following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, February 9th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. It's good to see you guys. I want to add my excitement along with you know, what God is doing in many of your lives and through your lives with organizations like STEP and Jobs for Life. Uh, one of the things that I'm excited about that is happening now inside Redemption Hill Church for the building up and the equipping and maturing of our own hearts and lives is the growing slate of RH equip classes that have been happening over this last year. And selfishly, one of my favorite classes is actually happening right now, so you can't get in it, but it'll come back again, I promise. And it's called How People Change. And it's a class about ground level gospel-centered, grace-driven living. Uh, It's a class that helps you and I begin to better understand and discern what's going on in our hearts. What are the thoughts? What are the affections? uh, What are the motivating factors in our hearts that give rise to the way that we respond to everyday circumstances in life? Good things or bad things? Everyday circumstances in life all demand a response from us. And It's a class that helps you and I be able to do the work of discerning what's going on in our hearts that gives rise to the responses, the attitudes, the actions, the words in our life, particularly the ones that don't reflect a a dependence and an enjoyment of Christ, that are not quite Christ-like. What's going on in those moments? What's underneath those things? And, And what of God and what of the gospel and what of his goodness and promises have we forgotten in those moments or failed to believe? And How can you and I, in remembering those things, repent of our attitudes and actions in an intelligent way so that the new fruit of obedience can be seen in our lives in the similar circumstances the next time they come up? It's about everyday, ground-level transformation, maturity, growing in heart, gospel-centered, grace-driven living. And one of the things I love most about it is that it gives us a very simple framework for thinking through these things. Now, some people work well with frameworks. Others don't. I like it. But there's a framework that helps you and I take a circumstance or a situation and process how we responded and why we responded and what of the gospel we didn't consider or did consider and what our responses look like. And it has four components and they're very simple. They go like this. Heat, thorn, cross, fruit. Say it really fast together like we do in the office. You get heath, thorn, which Shelby and I argue about all the time. One of us, whoever gets to WWE first, we get to use that as our stage name. Heath Thorn. Sounds like an action character name, but it's actually Heat Thorns Cross Fruit. And here's what it means. Heat. If you like to draw, you can draw a picture of the sun. If I was more savvy, I'd have it on the screen for you, but I don't. So picture of the sun. This is just the circumstance and the, the moment and the situation of everyday life that we're thinking about. This is just life under the sun. The varying things that you and I have to respond to on any given day. They can be good things, they can be bad things. They can be diagnoses from the doctor that took us off guard. They could be raises and promotions that took us off guard. Either way, we have to respond to them. Thorns, you can draw a picture of a thorn bush. Thorns represent the, let's just say sinful, the less than Christ-like ways we tend to respond to those circumstances and situations. What comes out of us that is not reflecting something of a satisfaction and a delight in who God is for us in Christ? And the root underneath those thorns. What's causing it? What's the motive? What's underneath that thing? What does that look like? How did I respond? 
On the other side of those thorns, there is the fruit. Fruit, you can think about as being responses to those everyday circumstances in life that reflect something of a satisfaction in Christ, a, a Christ-like response to those scenarios, a responding in them in such a way that you're, you're reflecting something of God's grace and wisdom to those around you. And the tendency that you and I have when we see the ways we respond to circumstances that are less than Christ-like is to double down on our effort to produce better responses the next time, figure out what we have to fix and do it differently next time. And that lasts for a while, but not for long, which is why the most important part of the whole framework comes in between the two. That's the cross. As we recognize the the thorny, sinful responses to the way that we're dealing with everyday life, and just even in, in small circumstances, you and I have an opportunity to slow down and consider what in our heart we were failing to remember or treasure about who God is and has been for us. What about him and what about Jesus and what about the gospel were we forgetting? And in remembering that reality of him and remembering that reality of his grace, remembering that truth of the gospel, it leaves you and I able to repent. Repent intelligently, not just generally, but intelligently that we might produce the fruit of new obedience in that same circumstance the next time. Heat, thorns, cross, fruit. It, it seems simple, but 14 years ago when I took the, the more full version of the original class, uh, God did something in my heart that I couldn't have anticipated. And over 14 years, he, he has just kind of grooved this framework in my heart and in my mind like the groove of a record. So that when the needle drops and I see and am confronted with something of my own heart and my own life, more often than not, this is how I begin to process it. Where did that response come from? What did that response look like? Why is that there? And I worked my way through it. Sitting down with some of you and talking through different circumstances in your life, you should know this is the process that I'm listening. What's the circumstance we're talking about? What's the situation at hand? How did you respond? Where did that response come from? What of that response is reflecting something of a, a forgetfulness or a lack of joy or dependence on who God is for you and who you believe him to be for you? How could that lead you to repent of that reality, that response, that circumstance, that thing differently? That what you really want to see happen in your heart and in your life can, can happen the next time. And I, I say all this now because when we go through Old Testament books like 1 Samuel, the most common question I get, I got it three times this week, is how do you guys figure out something to say in those stories every single week? I mean, it's a battle here and a tribe there and a land here and a genealogy here. How do you figure out stuff to say every week? So now I'm telling you how we do it. More specifically, how I do it. How I get ready for a morning like this in 1 Samuel chapter 13, which on the surface is gonna see so distant to our everyday life. How is it that I'm actually preparing to have something of value directed by God's spirit and studying his word to say to you? And it's, it's simply this, heat, thorns, cross, fruit. So this morning I thought I would, I would pull back the curtain and kind of let you see how the sausage gets made for a Sunday morning like this. And, and I'm gonna take you through my own process. So what often doesn't get said is gonna get said this morning. The things that are going through my mind and being written out as I'm getting ready for a Sunday morning are gonna be much of what we say this morning so you can see how this works itself out, not just in your own mind and in your own life or in how you're trying to do spiritual good for someone else, but how even as you're listening to God's word, even on a morning like this, these things are happening every single time. So if you found 1 Samuel chapter 13 by now, I hope I've given you enough time. We're gonna start with the last part of chapter 12. Chapter 12, if you were with us, you might remember was 
kind of that executive transition between Samuel as the prophet and the judge of God's people, the last judge of God's people, to Saul, the first king of Israel. Samuel would continue to serve the kingdom as the prophet, speaking God's word to the king. The king was to operate and live under the authority and direction of God's word, but Samuel is kind of transitioning now, and he was going to be the prophet to the king. The king was going to be, in some sense, that executive leader. And as he wrapped up this transition, he had this to say to all of Israel and to King Saul. Fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all of your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. There's two ways you can go. Fear the Lord and serve him faithfully or not. The writer wrote this in a way that he presents a a fork in the road moment in the narrative. And he sets you and I up to anticipate finding out how Saul and how Israel are going to respond. And we get that in chapter 13. But the first thing we've got to do as we're reading is I'm listening for and discerning what's the circumstance? What's the heat? What's common to man here in the story? What's going on that's actually happening? And we get it in the first part of the chapter. So let's pick it up in chapter 13, verse one, as we see the direction Saul and the people are gonna go and we can begin to see even more specifically the circumstance that brings it about. Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and in the hill country of Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. So just pay attention. We're, we're meeting Saul here in the chapter again, and he's doing the everyday work of a king. He is now king. There has been no king, which means there's been no unified kingdom army. So the king is setting up his first army. This is just the everyday life and stuff and work of a king in that day. Saul's doing very kingly things here, getting the army put together. He's getting it put together so they can deal with the threats. The people had asked very clearly in demanding a king that they would have one who would go before them in battle and defeat their enemies because they had a lot of enemies all around them. The Philistines, we've already learned, have have garrisoned, have an encampment inside Gibeah of Benjamin, inside Saul's hometown. They've been there for a little while now. And Saul, having been directed by the prophet already in chapter 10, we'll come back to it in a minute, to to do battle with those Philistines, he hadn't at this point. So when we meet him building his army and splitting his army up into two strategic locations, we can anticipate him finally doing something. And so what happens next is expected and unexpected at the same time. Verse three, Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba and the Philistines heard of it. So the Philistines who had been living in the region were not expecting Jonathan to lead the Israelites in battle against them and to defeat them. They were surprised by what happened. And because we don't know exactly how Jonathan got the command to go do what he did, we might surmise that Saul was surprised to hear about what happened. Did Jonathan do this on his own? Did Saul tell him to do it and we just weren't aware of it? We, we don't really know. Either way, Saul seized the moment and he sent out a press release to Israel from an Old Testament midnight tweet. Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, let the Hebrews hear. And all of Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines. Well, if Saul had commanded Jonathan to go to battle against the Philistines in Gibeah, then in some way you could say 
that the victory was in part Saul's as the commander in chief giving the direction. We don't get that information either way. What he said may not have been entirely inaccurate. It was just very misleading, just familiar to us. And all of Israel heard that he had done this great thing. But all of Israel also heard that they had become a stench to the Philistines, which you could expect. And so Saul calls all the people to join him in Gilgal. Now, that's interesting for a couple of reasons. If I had a map and I was good at those things, I'd show you that the Philistines are like right here in closing. Gilgal is like right here. When Saul split his army, he went over here and left Jonathan here. And now he's taking all the people down here. He's kind of avoiding the Philistines everywhere he goes. But he's not really just avoiding the Philistines. He's taking them to Gilgal and getting them all together for a specific reason. Back in chapter 10, verse 8, when the prophet, when Samuel gave Saul the specific instructions that he was to do as king, after he told them when the spirit of the Lord came upon Saul that he was to do whatever his hand found to do, which we understood back then as we went through it to mean go to battle against those Philistines in your hometown, Saul was to go down before them to Gilgal. Verse 8 of chapter 10. And Samuel said, Behold, I'm coming to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what to do. So Saul isn't just kind of avoiding the Philistines. It seems like he's going back to the earlier command that he had been given by God through Samuel that he didn't obey back then and trying to to get back to what he was supposed to do. And while he's doing that, the Philistines, verse 5, the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops, like the sand on the seashore in multitude. The thing that was supposed to mark the people of God. More, more, more multitudinous, I don't even know the word, than the sand on the seashore was God's promise to Abraham. But here the writer is helping us to see this was the reality for the Philistines in that moment. And they came up and they encamped in Michmash. That's where Saul was with his troops before he left. They're pressing in. Jonathan, and going to battle against the Pharisees, I mean the Philistines in Gibeah, seems to have provoked the bear. Verse six, when the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard pressed. That's a good phrase. The people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. They left the promised land. Some of them were acting like they were dead. Others left the promised land, crossed the Jordan, and went back to outside the borders. That's what was going on here. Saul, he was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. So here, just in this part, we can begin to kind of see more clearly what the heat is in the story. What's the circumstance that's happening? God's people are being hard-pressed. I love that phrase. They're being hard-pressed. They're in trouble. There's a crisis. They're afraid. Their fear is understandable from the human perspective. They're fleeing the land. They're acting like they're dead. The once very organized army we met in the very beginning of the chapter is now a mess of chaos as people are going everywhere. And the question is, what will Saul do? What's he going to do? 
Now, as we begin to try to understand the heat and the circumstance and the situation of the story for what it meant for those that were in the story originally, and then try to understand a circumstance and a heat that's similar, that's common to us, so many centuries removed, I have to start by going, well, there aren't many people in the room this morning. There might be some, but there aren't many people in the room this morning who have probably stood across a valley in battle from an overwhelming enemy force and felt the pressure like Saul felt pressing in on them and having to figure out what to do. And for those that are in here who have, we, we thank you for your service. And I'm sure your stories of this are, are legion and you can understand here. But for the majority of us sitting in here, that's not something we can immediately relate to. And so as we're trying to figure out the circumstance and the situation, our tendency is to go, well, that's not relatable to my life where I am right now, but you have to slow down. It might be more relatable than you realize. Saul was just doing the everyday work of life of a king in his day and time. This was just the everyday life of reality in a very real world with a very real person. He and the rest of Israel are either going to believe or disbelieve, obey or disobey, trust or mistrust God in their daily life, in their everyday work. You see, what's common to man and what's common to God's people is being in circumstances where you're hard-pressed on all sides. You may even find yourself fearful and uncertain. But either way, the circumstances of life demand responses from us. In a few minutes, we'll, we'll tease out some more of those that might be more common to us. But I'm talking about everyday things of sitting in traffic unexpectedly. Things coming out of you you didn't even know were there. There's five people waiting on you in a conference room to, for a proposal, for a pitch. You get the contract, you get the business, you get the business, you get the money, you get the money, you get the promotion, you get the promotion, you get more money. Get more money, it changes things for how you live. What if you don't get there? All of a sudden things are coming out of you, you didn't even know were there. And you're late to the third service and you gotta say something. That was personal, sorry. Maybe you get an assignment at work or from a teacher that, let's just say, crosses the lines of what's acceptable and you're left with having to respond. He can be good things too. You show up at work the same day and you get a promotion. You get a raise. You, you find out you're about to have another child. It's a good thing. But it demands a response from you. What's going on in this story that, that's common? That's what we're looking for in the heat. We understand what it is to be hard-pressed on, on all sides and in a few minutes, we'll, we'll get some more scenarios here. But let's watch the story for a minute and let's look for the ways that Saul may respond to this circumstance. In verse eight, Saul waited for seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal and the people were scattering from him. So it seems that the obedience that was asked of Saul maybe a year or so ago is finally starting to happen. And in the face of mounting opposition, being faced with the very real and tangible fear of God's people before him, Saul chose to wait. And each day that he waited, more of his men abandoned ship. And each day that more of his men abandoned ship, the enemy advantage only grew stronger. So read it like a human. Can you imagine what that must have felt like for Saul? I mean, those have to be the longest seven days of his life to this point. If he waits any longer, he might not have an army to fight with. 
right? The pressure is building. Hard pressed on all sides. So in verse nine, Saul says, bring the burnt offering here to me. Bring the peace offering. And he offers the burnt offering. He began to take matters into his own hands. If, if I'm going to have the favor of the Lord to go into battle with the Philistines that are only growing in number as my people are fleeing and scattering, my army's getting smaller, then I've got to go ahead and get this done. This is what I've got to do. I imagine that doing this was the only way his mind could reason as being the logical alternative. He either does this or he becomes the sacrifice, one or the other. And so in verse 10, it says, as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And you can imagine the relief on Saul's face. You gotta read it like a human. The prophet has come. He said he was going to come and now he's come. He's the one that God said through him was gonna tell me what to do. Go to Gilgal, he'll offer the sacrifices, then he'll tell me what to do next. Here he is, finally, the prophet. You can imagine Saul being so relieved. Well, now try to imagine the look on his face when he actually hears what Samuel has to say. Samuel gets to Gilgal and he looks at Saul and he says, what have you done? And you need to hear in that the voice of the Lord to Adam and Eve in the garden. You need to hear that same voice that Cain heard after he had murdered his brother. It's the same rhetorical diagnostic question that every parent will ask every one of their children at some point in their life. What have you done? And what we've known of Saul up to this point, we're left to wonder, does Saul even know what he's done? And so Saul looks at Samuel and he says, when I saw the people were scattering from me and that you didn't come within the days appointed and the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said to myself, now the Philistines will come down against me here in Gilgal and I've not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and I offered up the burnt offering. The people were leaving me. You didn't show up like you said. The Philistines, they're just getting stronger. They're just getting closer. I didn't even want to do it. Whatever I did that seems so wrong to you right now, I didn't want to do it. I had to force myself. It's not my fault. Now it's here, as we read it carefully, we can begin to discern and then apply some of the common thorny responses to pressure that we see here in Saul's life and that are far more common to our own heart even though the story seems so removed and distant. Remember, the word of the Lord to Saul and to Israel was to fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with your whole heart, having considered all the great things that he has done for you. Pressed in on all sides, heat of life on Saul, doing the kings do. How does Saul respond? In the faithful obedience to God's word? No. In the pressure of being pressed upon by an enemy army, Saul feared the painful things the Philistines might do to him. He feared the pain of losing face as the king amongst the people in the other nations. The fear he had for the Philistines and for his own reputation was greater in the moment than the fear God, than the fear Saul had for the Lord. And Saul disobeyed God's word. It's not just that in that moment, Saul, as king, offered sacrifices that he wasn't authorized to offer because he wasn't a priest. That's true. 
That's dishonorable worship. That is unholy worship. That is a stench in the nostrils of God. But underneath it, the thing that's really at play and what was going on in Saul's heart right here is that when the Lord had commanded him to go to Gilgal, to wait for Samuel to come and to offer the sacrifices, he was very clear, you wait until I come. That's what he said, until I come. And guess what? Samuel wasn't late. Saul waited until the seventh day. I'm sure he waited until about noon in that day, maybe even into the afternoon. But in the seventh day, Saul took things into his own hands. And guess when Samuel showed up? The seventh day. He wasn't late. He was just too late for Saul. The word of the Lord was to wait until Samuel came. And when Samuel comes and he begins to confront Saul and expose his disobedience, what does Saul do? He makes excuses. He looks every direction to try to shift the blame. It's the people's fault for leaving me. It's the Philistines' fault for threatening me. It's your fault for not showing up when I wanted you to show up. I had to force myself to even do this. Faced with the reality of his own disobedience, Saul would not own the responsibility for his sin. This is the oldest thorn bush in the story. It starts with Adam. So facing the pressure, Saul disobeyed God's word and then rationalized it. He made excuses for it. He tried to shift the blame for it. He didn't own it. Is this beginning to sound familiar to anyone? Do you have any idea what that's like in your own heart, in your own life? These thorny responses that we see here in Saul, in this story, to a moment and a circumstance of pressure in on his life, they're not unfamiliar to you and I. So let's think more specifically. Maybe someone you've been in a relationship with for a while, a friend, a a coworker, a family member, has repeatedly hurt you, disappointed you, slandered you, gossiped about you, whatever it is, and you're put in the position again to forgive them one more time. And you know that God's word tells you that we are to forgive each other just as God in Christ has forgiven us. But guess what? Your mind goes, they're just going to do it again. They're just going to hurt me again. How many times do I have to do this? If I do this one more time, I'm just going to find myself in the same situation because they're never going to learn. They don't listen to me anyway. And so we rationalize it. And unbeknownst to our rationalizations, a a root of bitterness begins to grow in our heart. Or maybe we have a a neighbor or a coworker or a classmate or someone in our life whose worldview and whose lifestyle is antithetical to everything that you hold dear in the gospel, right? And yet you're confronted with God's word to you to go and to make disciples of all nations. Teaching them to obey God everything that Jesus has commanded. But if you do that, they they might make fun of you. If you do that, the relationship, it's going to change and it it might never return to where it is now and what you're comfortable with right now. And isn't that what we pay people at the church to do? Those are kind of big. We'll get more personal. Maybe you sit down and you begin to map out your budget. 
you've, you've gotten a raise and you've gotten a promotion. And you remember in God's word as Paul spoke to the church in Corinth that every single one of us on the first day of the week, each of us sets aside a sum of money in keeping with our income. But if I do that, then that's gonna impact where I wanna move and what I wanna drive and what I wanna wear and what I wanna do. You're hard pressed on every side. Or maybe you're in love and God has given you the one you know you're to spend the rest of your life with. You've gotten engaged, you're committed. You know this is for real, this is gonna happen. A date is already on the calendar. You deal with the fact that God said this is his will for you, for your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. What difference does a month make? We're getting married anyway. I love him, she loves me. We're going to do this anyway in just a matter of time. Read it through the lens of the fallenness we all share in 1 Samuel chapter 13. It's not so remote anymore. You and I, we, we're people who have grown up steeped in a culture of situational ethics. And so we read the story and we immediately start feeling bad for Saul. I mean, doesn't the situation at hand dictate the action we're supposed to take? Isn't the right thing to do in that moment the thing that's most expedient for your well-being? The problem with that kind of thinking is it leaves us convinced that in any given moment, in any of those situations, in any moment of heat in our life, we know the best thing to do. We fool ourselves into thinking that we're right in our own eyes. And so we read Saul's story and we go, waiting any longer in obedience to God's word seems unreasonable in light of the pressure. I mean, isn't there a point at which obedience becomes unreasonable? Friends, these are the, the thorny responses of a heart coming out and being pressed upon in the heat of life. But all these thorns, they, they stem from a root. And we see it in the story if we begin to read it with these eyes. Look at verse 13. Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you, for then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. What's the root of the thorny responses? It's foolishness. The problem is when you and I hear foolishness, we think intelligence or intellect. And if we think about this story through the lens of intellect or intelligence, it would have been foolish for Saul to wait any longer for Samuel to show up because the Philistines were pressing in. But in the Bible, foolishness is not about intellect or intelligence. In fact, in Psalm 14, verse 1, we're reminded that it's the fool who says in his heart that there is no God. A fool is not one who lacks intellect or lacks intelligence. It's someone who in their heart, not that biological organ that's beating in your chest. It's the seat of the inner man. It's the whole complex of your inner being. It's your affections, it's your motivations, it's your desires and it's your passions that give rise to the things that you think and the things that you want and tell yourself you have to have which then provoke your actions and your behaviors. That's your heart. And the Bible says it's the fool who, who not with his mind and not with his mouth says there is no God. This isn't atheism and agnosticism. This is one who acts as though God could not or would not act on their behalf. 
This is what Saul has done. Saul acted in this moment as though God could not or would not deliver him. Failing as he was commanded to remember all that God had done for him, earlier in the story we already know that God had defeated the the Philistines, I keep saying Pharisees, too much New Testament, Philistines without an army. If you were with us, you might remember. As the ark had been taken captive by the Philistines, eventually it went from town to town throughout the Philistine region, and guess what happened? Tumors broke out everywhere. They got so tired of that ark being there, they sent it back to Israel. No king, no army, no battle. Here Saul's being pressed in by these same people. And Samuel says, you're a fool. To not keep God's command is the very thing a fool does. You see, to Saul and to us more than we want to admit, we begin to convince ourselves that certain situations and certain pressures negate obedience to God's word. Being obedient to God's commands to us aren't necessary in certain situations. So when it seems right to him or when it seems right to us, we, we don't consider ourselves bound to God's instructions. See, the root of mistrust, the root of unbelief, it, it always gives rise to disobedience and excuse. This is what we're seeing here. These are the thorns These are the sinful responses to the pressure. These are the root of where it comes from. And the thing that none of us want to acknowledge is that there are consequences for disobedience. For Saul, in this story, in this moment, in this time, the consequence in verse 14 is Samuel tells him, your kingdom shall not continue. I have sought out a man after his own heart and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Is that harsh? Well, it depends on what you think's at stake. I I cannot remember where they keep this, but John Wesley wrote in his personal Bible a margin note in 1 Samuel chapter 13. Wesley wrote right here in your, like, look at your Bible. You can write it right there. Wesley wrote in his own Bible, is there such a thing as a little sin? And then he wrote the answer to his own question right under it. Do you know how he answered it? He says there is, if only you think there is such a thing as a little God. You see, it's here even in the story. If we work our way through the framework, we're beginning to be confronted by something true of who God is and what he has done that Saul had failed to remember. Something that had not gripped his heart, had not delighted his heart, and in his forgetfulness gave way to this disobedience. But before we unpack it, I want you to see first how Saul responds to Samuel exposing his sin. Verse 15, Samuel arose and he went up from Gilgal and the rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army and they went from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. How does Saul respond when his sin is exposed? When the prophet speaks to him and and what he's done and what happens comes clear. What does Saul do? He does nothing. Quite literally, in one of the saddest moments in Saul's story, Saul parts ways with Samuel. Samuel. The prophet who speaks the word of God, that was to be the direction and the authority and the oversight for the king and how he lived and how he led and for his people is going one way and the king is going the other way. 
The king and the word of the Lord have parted now. This is going to be a trajectory for the rest of Saul's life that we see in the rest of the story. It's only going to go downhill in that direction for Saul. In fact, Samuel is only going to speak authoritatively to Saul personally one more time. It's in chapter 15. It's not a pretty thing. By the end of the story, before Saul dies, he's so departed from the authority of God's word that Saul goes to a witch. He asks a witch to conjure up Samuel's dead spirit so that Samuel's dead spirit can tell him whether or not he's in the favor of God. This is what happens for Saul. In the story, as he separates from Samuel, as he goes one way from the word of God and goes the other way with his men, the story only gets a little bit darker. We don't have time to read through the whole thing, but if you read the rest of this chapter, it's part of next week, so we're gonna get to it. But in the rest of this chapter, you you begin to see the hopelessness that Saul was facing and that Israel was feeling. Saul would number his men in the next verse and there would only be 600 of them left. From 3,000 to 600. And as he and Jonathan and those 600 men would gather together, they would watch the Philistines in their 10,000s and in their chariots and on their horses and with their iron instruments and their spears break out in three groups and begin to approach. And the writer lets us in on a little scenario. Remember Saul didn't go and, and do battle with the Philistines when God had told him through Samuel back in chapter 10, he let the Philistines stick around for a while. Well, do you know what they did when they stuck around? The Philistines monopolized the iron market there in Israel. So they wouldn't allow any Israelite man to come and have a sword or have a weapon. His plow, his plowshare, the goads for his, his saddle and his, and his bull, he had to go to a Philistine to get them sharpened and pay double what everyone else had to pay. So you get to the end of this chapter and they're facing these 10,000 Philistines coming with 600 men and it says only Saul and Jonathan have a sword. That's where they are. And what happens next at that point, you have to come back next week to hear. But you don't have to wait till next week, even as we go through the framework, to see something of God here. Something of how he, even in his grace, rescues us from the merry-go-round that our, that our sin brings in our lives. You know, as you respond to a situation in a way that doesn't reflect a satisfaction in the gospel, that is in a quite sinful, unchristlike way, you know what happens? That response only produces more heat. You begin to get mad and yell at that person in traffic, and you show up back home, you start yelling at everybody else. Now you're yelling at everybody else and you've got to deal with that. And now people aren't responding to you the way you want them to respond. So now you're yelling at them for that. You get caught in this merry-go-round that you can't seem to get out of and you have to be left with going, is there a way out of this thing? Well, that's where in the model the cross comes in. You see it even here in the story, something of God that Saul is forgetting, something of God that shows us what he is doing for us in his grace. We've already mentioned it, but here you're reminded of God's utter holiness. The holiness of God, which defines the fact that there can be no such thing as a little sin. Because he is truly holy, for one little sin, Jesus had to die and shed his blood as an atoning sacrifice. Saul was failing to consider and live out of the reality of God's holiness. Therefore, his disobedience is significant, even if it seems rational to him and rational to us. We're reminded in light of God's holiness that no sin is to be taken lightly. 
you and I rationalize our disobedience. We rationalize our sin. We rationalize things like Saul to the degree that we rationalize and take the weight out of God's holiness. The less holy God is in our heart, the easier it is for us to rationalize our own disobedience. We're reminded as we think about what it was about God that he's revealed to himself, even at this point in redemptive history, that Saul was not believing, that Saul was not holding tight to, that Saul was not remembering. He was forgetting the holiness and the sovereignty and the severity of God. His disobedience and our disobedience are always born from mistrust and it's always foolish and it's always dangerous. But there's something else there. There's more than that. There's something else the writer gives us here if we just listen. When Samuel confronts Saul and tells him that his kingdom is being taken from him. Samuel says the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and the Lord has commanded him to be the prince over his people. If you've grown up in church, you're familiar with that phrase. If you're familiar with that phrase, you always associate that phrase with David. Yes, the writer is beginning to drip the story of David here into the narrative. We're gonna meet David in a couple of weeks. So yes, he's beginning to introduce us to that. But when we think about the phrase, when we think about David, when we use it in our own everyday life in the church, we talk about being men after God's own heart. We, we talk to each other as men. Are you a man after God's own heart? Do you want to be a man after God's own heart? What we're saying is, are you a man who loves what God loves, who delights in what God delights in, who obeys God's word out of a delight and a trust in him? And yes and amen, that is an aspect of this. But very specifically, This phrase has nothing to do with David being a man after God's own heart because David was sensitive to God. Yes, God loved David. Yes, that's important. But grammatically, the story, Saul, whose name means asked, he was the asked for king. He was the ask of their asking. What God is saying through Samuel here is that God has taken the kingdom away from Saul and he has gone and found a king of his own choosing. That's what it means. The one that I have promised, the one that I told you I was going to give you, I have gone and sought a man of my own choosing. This is what, this is what Samuel is saying. And so while the writer drips the arrival of David into the story, more importantly for us where we sit in redemptive history, we read it with the anticipation for David's greater son. The one Matthew introduces to us in Matthew chapter one, verse one, as David's greater son, Jesus himself. He is the man after God's own heart. He is the one of God's own choosing. He was the one who was hard-pressed on all sides, not by the Philistine armies, but by Satan himself. He was the one in his pressure and temptation who never sinned, who always obeyed the word of the Lord perfectly and who did it out of a trusting and delighted heart. In fact, it was him who said to Satan, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. In his manner of life and in his manner of living, this is how Jesus lived. Though he was tempted in every way as you and I are. And because of that, he can empathize with all of our weakness, the writer of Hebrews says. Even as he was tempted as we are, he never sinned. Jesus is the king of God's own choosing, the man after God's own heart who lived the perfect life of joyful obedience that you and I were meant to live. He was the one who was righteous before God on our behalf. 
He is the king of God's own choosing. He is the righteous king who would die as a sacrifice for the life of sin that you and I live instead. He is the one that Paul would tell the church about in 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake God made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Where you and I and Saul, all of us born on this earth have inherited the sin, guilt, nature from Adam and we can read these stories even in 1 Samuel chapter 13 and see what's common to man in a fallen world. Even though the story seems so far away, we can read it and we can see the responses and we can see the commonality because we inherited it from Adam. And just as we inherited that guilt and God's just condemnation from Adam, in Christ, the king of God's own choosing, the, the man after his heart, you and I, by God's grace, can be made righteous. Jesus is the man after God's own heart. He is the righteous king of God's own choosing who sacrificed himself righteously on our behalf as a gift that you and I, by the grace of God, might be declared righteous. Not because you and I have anything inherent in us that earns it or deserves it, but because it's a gift. He is the righteous king of God's choosing, the one who will reign forever. He is the man after God's own heart, a greater priest than even Samuel, who can empathize with us in weakness and intercedes on our behalf and opens for us by grace access to the Father. He's no mere prophet that simply speaks words. He is the word of God himself. He is the man of God's own choosing. And so we think back to Samuel's instruction to fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all of our heart considering what great things he has done for you. How do you get from the thorny, disobedient, unfaithful, mistrusting responses to the everyday realities of life over to the fruitful responses of reflecting something of God's grace and Christ's likeness to a watching world? It starts by remembering what God has done for you in Jesus. It always goes back to the cross. When we consider who God is and what he has done, we're reminded again of the deception of sin the dangers of our own reasoning and justifications. We're reminded how rational they seem to us at the time, but they're not thoughts and intentions that flow from faith. Human wisdom never looks at the cross and sees a king of glory. It never looks at the cross and sees your salvation. It's only faith that looks at the cross and, and sees righteousness, sees joy, sees forgiveness, sees hope, sees a king, and sees a friend. That's why John would say to the church, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, I wish he had said when you sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, he is the propitiation, the sacrificial payment for our sins. When we see him again, when we see him rightly, when we see and are confronted again in our heart with what about him we had forgotten, we had not treasured, we had not been satisfied by, we had thought we were wiser then, when we see it again, we are able then to respond intelligently in repentance. 
A grace-driven, faithful repentance is possible, and that repentance is what produces the new fruit of obedience in all the circumstances and situations we find ourselves in. That's how it works. You and I will be able to forgive as we've been forgiven. We'll be more willing to risk our reputations in order to share the gospel because we know that eternity is at stake. We'll look for ways to give and a way that stretches our faith and our comfort. We'll trust that God has our highest joy in mind for our marriage and our relationships. Whatever your circumstance might be, the fruitful response of Christ-like obedience is possible as we remember who God is for us in his son and see Jesus more clearly and are able to repent more intelligently of all the unfaithful, disobedient, and sinful ways we've responded to those same circumstances before. Because now we're trusting again that God's word is for our highest joy and for his greatest glory. That his word is life and death and necessity for our hearts. That only a fool would think he is wise in his own eyes. Heat, thorns, cross fruit, heath, thorn for short. May seem silly, may seem simplistic. But if it helps you see Jesus, if it helps you to enjoy Jesus, if it helps you with your own heart be able to get to a place where you can reflect something of him to a watching world as you respond to circumstances in your life and order your life differently because of your joy in him, then it's worth it. Because Jesus is worth it. Let me pray for us this morning as we prepare to respond to God's word. Father, we thank you that you, you can use even situations and stories of long ago to help expose parts of our hearts that we would care to never pay attention to, parts of our hearts that are more comfortable for us to rationalize and justify and figure we'll go back, we'll fix, we'll deal with later, but Lord, what we want more than anything is a heart that deeply enjoys you, that is deeply satisfied in you, that that lives a life that flows out of that delight in you, that obeys you out of confidence and joy that you're for our good and for your glory, a heart of trust and a heart of hope. And Lord, for that to be a reality in our hearts this morning, you need to do a work by your Holy Spirit that only can happen as, as you do it. And so we ask this morning that you would do that very thing in each heart here this morning that needs to happen for us to see you more clearly and enjoy you more deeply and be willing to turn from those things that we have depended upon apart from you. All the things we thought would bring us security and identity, all the things we thought we had to have that seemed wise in our own eyes given the circumstances that we were in, that, but that showed a mistrust and a lack of confidence in you and how you've directed us and what you've said is for our joy. Lord, we want you to be glorified and we want to experience the joy that you have designed for our hearts. And so we ask that you would do that work in our hearts by your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.